This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. Welcome to the morning run on BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng. It's now 3.30, sorry, 9.36 a.m. <laughs> Not 3.36, 9.36 a.m. It's time for the SM show. This is, of course, the show where we rant about what's working in markets and what's not. We've got this week our guest, Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, independent forex strategist. Welcome, Dr. Suresh. Hi. Okay, let's, uh, the topic for this week is surprising factors affecting the ringgit. So, uh, Dr. Suresh, everyone uh, always talks about the US dollar when talking about the ringgit, right? You've got to convert the ringgit into something to know whether uh, the value is going up or down. But surprisingly, uh, based on what you have sent us, uh, the US dollar has very little to do with the movements of the ringgit. I mean, the, the key thing here to take note is um, as much as on an intraday basis, people tend to look at what happens overnight in the market and then that dictates the daily trading uh, views. But on a medium term, it's actually not purely just the dollar itself or the rate high expectations. Um, if you look at uh, what the IMF consultation papers did uh, on a review in the Malaysian economy uh, a couple of weeks ago, they highlighted two key elements in it. One was actually the exposure to China exports. The other one was actually exports to mineral fuels to North Asia, Korea and Japan. And uh, looking at what they have actually undertaken on their studies, it tells that a lot of the changes on the ringgit depreciating last year was mainly due to these factors. So coming into this year itself, uh, I think people need to shift their views from just looking at rate high expectations in the, U, in the US to something which is more closer, which is looking at the North Asian currencies. So when we look at the IMF report, uh, does what kind of tone does it give us? Is, it, is this a bad thing or is it a good thing? Because we know that the problems of China has been very well publicized. Yeah, you know, the, the gist of the report itself is uh, centered on the appendices uh, there are almost, almost 14 of it there. Uh, the key thing here to highlight there was uh, the hard-hitting views by the IMF was there in the appendices. But in the introduction, uh, it was very balanced view. Mm. Uh, it had a comparison between what they were suggesting and what policymakers in Putrajaya and BNM were doing. So that was actually something which was familiar, at least to me, and it was actually looking very neutral. But uh, what was really astounding was actually where the appendices, uh, especially on the part where they highlight on the exchange market pressure itself and ringgit was actually or Malaysia actually to a large extent was the one that was actually performing worse off than any other emerging market uh, economy in this part of the world itself. Do you agree with them Dr. Suresh? I mean when the IMF says you know the Malaysian ringgit is less uh, vulnerable to a uh, interest rate hike in the US I mean do you share that same view that perhaps we shouldn't be paying that much attention to the US dollar and more attention to the yuan yeah you know if you look at Malaysia's stock market if you look at its debt market it's more of a defensive market in this part of the world itself so yes uh, you have that influence of US interest rate moves but it's getting a lot more smaller these days uh, the effects are fading so naturally what it tells you is that the ringgit and even actually asset classes here has a mind of its own. It's more closely centered towards what's happening in China and North Asia. That's why I find that, you know, as much as people say about rate high expectations in the US, yes, it's there. I mean, about two years ago, yes, it would have had an influence, but it's fading on. So mm -hmm. it's it's something which is closer to its home that we should be looking, which is actually 
particularly the North Asian countries. That's actually the main driver these days. So has the ringgits uh, strengthened or weakened against the yuan? Uh, you know, the last few sessions, what we've noticed, the ringgit has actually weakened. Uh, you know, in the first quarter this year, the ringgit actually performed very well. And uh, in the second quarter year to date, uh, it's actually down by almost close to 4%. Uh, even though oil has actually gone up, so which means it's detaching from the movements in oil or even actually broad-based dollar movements itself. So it's moving closer towards actually different factors that are driving it in the second quarter itself. Is uh, so the yuan is that a fairly stable currency, or are we are we thinking about you know relatively huge, right? Is it relatively uh, relatively stable? Yeah. extremely stable because uh, the Chinese government doesn't allow a big wild swing with the yuan. Exactly, exactly. Uh, they don't allow the currency to gyrate, like how the dollar moves, um, that's because the currency is not freely floated itself. Uh, mm-hmm. There's still capital controls on the on the yuan. But I, I tend to feel that, you know, ever since that we actually depacked from the dollar way back in 2005, the 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 yuan is actually an anchor for the ringgit uh, on most occasions. Uh, it tends to track the movements of the policy movements there rather than actually looking at the dollar itself. Uh, I think it's a shift in thinking uh, on the policymakers' front that the yuan actually uh, carries a lot more weightage on the direction of the ringgit on the policy front itself. And if I look at um, you know longer term, slightly longer term uh, viewpoint, uh, in a two-year time period, the ringgit has weakened against the yuan by about 30%. Uh, but that seems like uh, the weakening against the U.S. dollar is a little bit more. Uh, so more for the U.S. dollar and less for the yuan. Is that relevant? You know, uh, you know, much of the exports are actually to China. That's one thing. Uh, so now, if you are actually looking at actually trying to exploit the dollar strength by exporting more to the U.S., I think we are failing. Uh, it's it's extremely difficult to penetrate the American economy itself because the key thing to take into account is that actually the American economy is so sophisticated and technology driven, and we can't provide some of the stuff that they are using at all. Uh, but for China, we are very commodity driven, mm-hmm. so we could actually export those stuff there. The countries that actually can penetrate the American economy on the export front is Singapore, uh, India. Uh, they probably can. They have wow. that know-how to actually penetrate the economy itself because of the stuff that they produce. But we are not there yet. Uh, is, is there a risk of a currency blow-up because uh, China has not uh, depreciated as much as its neighbours, for example, uh, the Japanese yen and the uh, South Korean won and so on. Uh, and there is a sense that e- even though they say that they're now trying to move from a manufacturing economy to one of a consumption economy, um, is there still that risk, a speculative risk as far as the yuan is concerned, or even a policy risk as far as the yuan is concerned that uh, the government may not be able to stand behind their words, that there would be no major devaluations in the yuan? You know, when I compare the Chinese economy, it brings back memories of the Japanese economies in the 70s. Uh, it was a manufacturing hub. It was exporting its way out. Uh, the yen That's a was long extre- time ago. Yeah, <laughs> You're much older <laughs> than we are. <laughs> the yen was extremely weak. Uh, you know, the Chinese economy is transiting, but the pace of its transition is actually very slow. The main reason being its population is large. And uh, it's, a, it's a socially driven economy itself. You know, you must bear in mind it's a communist co- economy mm. itself. So it tells you actually that transition to a consumer-driven economy from manufacturing and exporting will take some time. Uh, but the other thing that they have to actually do to a large extent, what Japan did was actually they have to freely float the currency. Uh, that will be the, the mechanism or the tool to do it. But I think 
Beijing is not prepared to do that. Because so are you saying yeah. that the yeah. the yuan rates will be kind of stable for now? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but not too long ago, the Chinese government tried to make uh, you know some reforms to open up their currency market to be part of the special drawing rights. Right? Yeah. Do you not think that was enough of a move, or I mean, or a signal in the right direction? Not really. Uh, you know, the key thing here is actually you ask any FX trader in town who is actually dealing with Chinese one. He really does not know where to put his finger in because there are three currencies uh, yeah. being traded in Yuan China itself. Uh, oh, you t- have t- yeah, tell me more about this because <laughs> I'm not familiar with the three different currencies. Okay, um, first we had the Chinese one, which is traded on the spot market onshore. Then you have actually the CNH, which is traded in the spot market in Hong Kong. Then you have actually the Chinese one non-deliverable forwards, which is a forward market, okay, which is traded actually outside of Beijing. Then you have the CNH deliverable forward, which is traded actually in Hong Kong. That's more than three. <laughs> so, <laughs> I tell you, so there are almost three to four curves there. Oh. And um, the key thing here is actually it's being segmentized based on the rules and regulations that, that Beijing has actually put in. So, some people can access to the onshore, some people can access to the forward, some people can access both markets. So, that is the main issue that actually people are grappling with because mm-hmm. you can't go forward with four different currency curves. I, gu- I guess it's uh, fair to say that the Chinese government really wants to focus on trade and uh, not ready to go into that world where there is a huge amounts of speculation as what the FX traders would love because that's their job, right? They want to play around with currencies. But for now, uh, the yuan trade is really uh, there to support the kind of trade that's going on minus uh, the speculative effects. And I'm not sure if that is a bad thing. That's probably quite a good thing for an economy like China. Yeah, it's good. But, you know, a lot of this trading, actually, which is trade-related exports and imports, the key thing is actually the people who actually, uh, I mean, in China at least, when they actually want their payments to be made, they prefer to be paid in U.S. dollars. Uh, the reason is because it's more liquid. Uh, you know, if we are in Malaysia, would you be, want to be prefer to be paid in ringgit or in dollar terms? There, I know some companies actually prefer to actually get paid in US dollars. So, because it's more liquid. So, it comes to a point back again, if you're trade-related, yes, what sort of currency you want to be paid at the end of the day? Uh, and you have confidence in certain currencies because it's liquid, uh, it's interchangeable, uh, it's a lot more easier to do that. So the IMF highlighted something called the exchange market pressures or the EMP and how that's affecting the ringgit. So we're talking about all the surprising factors that will affect the movement of the ringgit, not just the USD. In fact, you mentioned earlier it's now got less to do with the the US dollar, more to do with the Chinese yuan. And, And trade as well. And trade as well. And you also mentioned something that I thought was interesting, that the accompanying North Asian currencies, the South Korean won and the Japanese yen has something to do with it as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the key, you know, if you look at Japanese economy and the Korean economy, uh, 25 years ago, it stuck different itself. Uh, the Japanese economy was actually way ahead. If you look today, uh, I was looking at the Hyundai cars, the Genesis, uh, yesterday. It was pretty good quality. <laughs> you know, it looked fantastic. It tells you actually how far they've come. The Korean one and the Japanese yen are currencies which are actually very closely tied from an 
trade side as well as actually from a trading base itself on the market itself. What I notice is that uh, there's intense pressure for the yen to weaken. Uh, the Japanese policymakers are actually trying to talk the currency to the weak side, mm-hmm. which also means if the yen actually weakens, the Korean one will move in tandem itself. So which means back again, these two currencies are actually very much in sync. Uh, but the outlier here is the yuan. Uh, it does not move to that itself. Right. Uh, and if you look at some of the Chinese products, uh, I'm using an Oppo phone, actually. It's pretty good as well. So which tells you actually they are actually moving pretty close. Uh, so in the next few years, you'll notice all three of these currencies will be closely integrated very strongly, uh, trade-wise, trading-wise, and it'll become a very competitive currency itself. Uh, the only outlying now, is, as I said earlier, was the Chinese renminbi, which is actually not moving in tandem. But in the years to come, it's going to move in tandem as what has actually happened with Japanese yen as well as the Korean one. Mm-hmm. Unless you have a kind of a two-decade-long uh, deflationary spiral and the government is doing a lot to, like, like the Japanese have, doing a lot to deliberately have a weakening policy. Yeah, you know, that... The years late 1990s actually was pretty much a lost decade for Japan. Uh, it still can't come out of a deflationary spiral. But, you know, you must come back again and ask yourself, actually, if you want to actually come out of it, actually wages in Japan are pretty high. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, secondly, inflation is pretty low. Uh, cost of living is pretty high. The currency by any standards is pretty strong. Uh, which means actually it puts in a lot of pressure on deflation spiral itself, which comes back again, if you have an inflation targeting policy like what Bank of Japan is doing, becomes a lot more difficult to come out of it. Mm. Uh, so I think to a large extent, actually Japan is in a liquidity trap. Uh, it's trying to pump prime its economy, but it's not able to do so. But the key thing here is actually it's still one of the largest economy in the world. It mm-hmm. still produces goods which are fantastic, still a very competitive economy, and its policies are actually integrated with global markets itself. So sometimes when you look back, actually, see, the way back in the 1990s when we had the Lukey's policy, was actually a policy that was pretty good, actually. <laughs> so, you know, I'm yeah. just curious to know whether this is a, a specifically Malaysian case that, you know, this almost decoupling to the US dollar, or is this something around the region? Are other are neighbours also seeing a lot more of... Uh, a closer tie to the yuan and the won and uh, the yen as opposed to the dollar. What well, what is really uh, fascinating about the Malaysian economy is that uh, you know way back in the fifties and sixties when we used to export items, it was actually timber, uh, rubber, and tin. Uh, over the years, we've actually we've actually moved up the value added chain. We've actually moved towards exporting furniture, sawn timber, liquefied natural gas, and palm oil and Electronics. Uh, yeah, electronics is it, these type of things. But you must bear in mind these products are still based on underlying commodities. Yeah. So Absolutely. that's that's the main thing here. So the, the demand for these products tends to actually be a function of actually the core commodity products. Like now in the case of actually Indonesia, even actually Thailand, they've not moved up the value added chain like what Malaysia has done. So we get a bit more exposed when the end demand is a bit more on a swing note itself. Mm-hmm. So which means actually we get hit a lot more. But the other thing that we take into account is that we've got a financial sector which is fairly liberalized compared to even what Thailand or even Indonesia has done or even Philippines. So we tend to get more exposed to it. But my only concern is actually we should not have actually moved closer towards the value-added chain in commodity products, but we should have moved into high high-skilled jobs and high-skilled products. Um, I'm talking about actually coming up stuff with what Singapore is doing. Uh, it's got a huge pharmaceutical industry. 
uh, it's got a huge uh, microchip industry itself. You should have moved in that stage itself. Mm-hmm. And they're, yeah. they're also uh, uh, catching up with us on uh, the taste of chicken rice. But uh, this <laughs> this brings me to the other um, surprising factor, right? Uh, yeah. uh, LNG. This is surprising. Um, you're saying that this really has a big impact on the ringgit. You know, as much as actually we produce oil, we produce around close to around six hundred thousand barrels uh, per month, and and the fact that actually the LNG also constitutes a huge amount. Uh, we are one of the major producers of LNG. Australia is actually going to become the largest in the world in the mm-hmm. next few years wow. itself. Uh, Talk about uh, <laughs> Australia trying to diversify from the mining, mining. industry, and now they're <laughs> becoming the largest LNG producer. So it, it tells you actually, the LNG constitutes a large chunk of our GDP itself. But the key thing here is actually we've got long-term contracts of selling LNG to Japan and and Korea itself. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, actually we've tied another contract with them uh, for the next few years itself. So it's a long-term buyer. Uh, willing buyer, willing seller thing, and prices are fixed. But the key thing here is actually when oil prices came down, LNG prices also dropped. So that actually had impacted. So it's us. linked. Uh, yeah. Silly question, yeah. but LNG yes. is is linked yes. to oil prices, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. So what what were the other surprising factors? So you had um, the Chinese yuan and trade, and now LNG. Yeah. And what was the other one? Uh, the other one, which is actually pretty uh, much of a concern, what the IMF said was actually the non-resident uh, deposits in the local financial system. Uh, that's a huge amount, uh, and the IMF highlighted that actually non-resident deposits tend to actually get out, uh, given the uncertainty on the market here. Uh, it could actually uh, introduce a leak in the financial system. Or You're not talking e- about bank deposits, are you? No, I'm talking about just purely non-resident deposits. I, I know, but yeah. uh, how the, how do these manifest itself? What what do they buy into? Uh, it could, you know, non-resident deposits like and actually expats coming into yeah, expats are putting okay. the money actually in FDs here as well as actually buying. Uh, uh, properties and so on here. Yeah. Mm. So this this type of deposits, if it actually gets out, uh, it has a huge impact on the liquidity in the system. It it drains all the liquidity itself. So, so the IMF thinks this is a serious problem. Yes, it is significant uh, enough yes, to be a yeah. problem. It's fifteen percent of GDP in two thousand nine, and about twenty three percent as at the end of twenty fifteen. Wow, that's a big jump. Yeah, that's that's actually the short term debt in the banking system. Yeah, that's the short term debt. Is that equivalent yeah. to uh, non-residents deposits in Malaysia? Yes, well? it includes yeah. that actually. There's short-term offshore debt as well as non-resident deposits as well. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, how how easy or how um, uh, you know easier is this for this money to flow out? Because if you say they're buying property, they can't just sell property in a jiffy, can they? They can't actually. But you know, it's a lot of that money comes in actually for speculative basis as mm. well. So so in stocks and yeah, bonds and exactly. bonds and. But you know, you know. A lot of it is actually coming back into the picture. Actually, what was the attractive levels that came in on the exchange rate? Uh, if that came, if they had come in actually at around like four ringgit twenty cents, and the currency is trading at you know four, four ringgit and five cents, it makes they them again, yeah. But you know, the question is actually, did they come in at three fifty? So, if you if you see further gains on the ringgit, uh, you could see uh, an enticement for this type of non-resident deposit to get out itself, mm. and mm. that's the danger of a capital yeah, flight yeah, risk, right? Yeah. Okay. So this this. Uh, as as a kind of like a closing question, right? Uh, the movement of ringgit is not just something that influences me in the short term as to what I want to gamble in, what I want to <laughs> speculate in, right? But over the long term, how can I plan my life? I mean, the ringgit has uh, fallen from two fifty to four plus. What is your foreca- forecast of where it will go in the next twenty thirty years? 
I mean, 20, 30 years. <laughs> That's really long time. That's a long no, but, time. But it, is, it is a relevant question, uh, Doctor, because, yeah. um, you know, 250 in the 70s, uh, um, that that movement to, in that wake of that movement okay. to about yeah. four plus yeah. people are stranded because they send their yeah. kids uh, for education yeah. overseas. You know, if you if you look at the trend of the ringgit uh, from the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and nineties, even now, it is gradually weakened to the dollar from around one something to two something. Uh, then went to three handle. Now it's four handle. So the question is actually probably in the next few years, it could end up in about five or six handle itself. Oh. Uh, so that is something which I noticed or observed that over the years, over the last few decades, the ringgit has actually moved a handle every other decade. Okay, we're running out of time, but yeah. what is driving this? What is driving this move to five or six? Yeah. It's actually a structure of the economy which is actually gradually not being very competitive itself. Um, unfortunately, Dr. Suresh, we've run out of time. You just heard Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, independent forex strategist. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng. News at 10 o'clock is up next on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.